Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. And welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today, I want to talk about the United Auto Workers Union, their current fight for a new and better contract, and their leadership. Now, all of this stems from a long, drawn-out fight to democratize the auto workers' union. This follows something like 60-plus years of a top-down, dictatorial, one-party rule, which was recently overthrown. And this one-party rule was imbued in the executive board, a non-democratic board, which was sort of like a self-appointed aristocracy which ruled over the union and was firmly and thoroughly in the back pocket of the corporations. They were joined at the proverbial hip. The Auto Workers Union was founded in militancy. It won its most well-known and significant victories with militant strikes, which resulted in actual battles with police forces throughout the Midwest, but particularly in Flint, Michigan. Many auto workers were actually gunned down, shot um, in these strikes and these worker movements. This militancy was driven by a large socialist contingent within the union, resulting in the auto workers actually seeing, you know, 32 hour work weeks as a standard, as a realistic goal in the 1940s and 1950s. Today, the union is making arguments for a 32-hour standard work week, and they are viewed as, like, impossible-to-please zealots. This is all, of course, after concessionary contract after concessionary contract, which has left these workers with 12-hour days, seven days a week, for months on end. Not to mention wages which are stagnant or falling versus the inflation rate. And this all predates the current inflation crisis over the past couple of years. Now, the UAW is looking like it's definitely going to be on strike. I don't usually make predictions like that, but it's not looking good. I have several customers of mine which are organized by the UAW and involved in auto industry, um, you know, directly. Two Ford warehouses kind of stick out in particular. And I've talked to uh, multiple people there. And they're all dead-ass set on striking. And according to them, this is the prevailing attitude of the rank and file that they know from other companies when they've had meetings. It really does look like a strike is coming. The vote to authorize a strike should happen this week, perhaps even before I get this episode out, or maybe even the same day. Um, Both the vote to authorize and the willingness to strike is due, at least in part, to the newly militant and combative stance that the union has taken since their last leadership election, really the first true election that they've had in decades. This new leadership is headed up by a man named Sean Fain. And Sean Fain is the final Sean. He's the third of the holy trinity of labor Sean's. Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters, Sean Fain of the UAW, and Sean of the Tribunus Plebis podcast. These three Seans, as you've started to call us, or Sean Cubed for the cooler kids. Now, if you're not named Sean, you might not know this, but there is a very quiet, very violent war going on with mass casualties on both sides, which is being fought by the two Sean factions. On one side are the real Shans, the true Shans, the S-E-A-N Shans. 
On the other side are the SH shuns, S-H-A-W-N and the extremely rare S-H-A-U-N shuns. Sean Fain is in fact an S.H. Sean. Normally, I don't trust those S.H. Seans, and you shouldn't either, but Sean Fain seems pretty cool, so us S.E.A.N. Seans are going to give him a conditional pass. And so this newly militant and somewhat radical union is demanding shorter work weeks, fewer hours, higher pay, better benefits, and much, much more. The rank-and-file auto workers are seeking those higher wages and benefits for sure, but they are also trying to get better overall quality of life as well. They are battling for better lives. The auto companies are looking for concessions. They are trying to ring their workers for even more profits, bigger bonuses, and to make the already ultra-wealthy and powerful even more wealthy and even more powerful. We here at Tribunus Plebes, we know which side that we are on. So let's dig into this subject and see what is really happening here. At the heart of this fight is dignity. Alongside that core principle is the idea that we now sell our time by the hour rather than our labor for a portion of the value we create. This slight switch in how we think about wages is very important. It commodifies our very life essence and our very um, like limited time on this planet. That value, time, commodity issue isn't just pedantic either. It blurs and obfuscates the true value of our labor and really the true value of our entire lives. We have been changed into a weird amalgam of worker and consumer above all else. Existence itself is internalized as us being in service to corporations. Less time at home, more time at work, less than ever to show for it. The equation here is all askew. It's inhumane at its core. This is why the UAW was originally organized, to fight the same sorts of forces that we face today. In fact, like I mentioned earlier, in the 1950s, the union was waging the fight for something we will talk about in a few minutes, 32-hour work weeks. Yes, this really was on the bargaining table in the 40s and the 50s. And here we are today, and we are seeing these same workers in this same industry. We're just watching them break under the intense weight of 12-hour shifts for seven days a week for multiple months at a time. We are heading in the wrong direction and the former UAW leadership taking the form of that undemocratic executive board that was literally friends with the corporate monsters helped drive the situation to the point that we are at right now. The workers of the United Auto Workers, they understand this, and they managed to fight and win democracy in their union to fix it, and in doing so, they elected Sean Fain to help get them there. As we will see, the UAW is fighting for wages and benefits, yes, but they're also focused on something more inherently important than that. They are fighting to recognize that we are, in fact, being paid for our time, the most finite resource any of us has on this entire planet. And this should be the primary launching pad for every labor fight that awaits us now and in the future. All right, so how did we get here? Well, here's the one-minute version. The United Auto Workers Union, the UAW, it has a fairly long history in the United States. I'm not going to go deep into it, but here are a couple of the high points. It was founded in 1935, 
and by 1936, it had expanded rapidly. And it was in 1936 that the UAW held a sit-down strike in Flint, Michigan. And this is a very, very famous moment in American labor history, and it's super important. And we will get a history episode on that at some point right here at Tribunus Plebis. Um, in this strike, they were demanding recognition of the union from General Motors, and they won. Just a month after that, they were recognized at Chrysler as well. By the end of that year, the UAW had over 150,000 workers signed up, and the union was still expanding rapidly around the car production centers of the Midwest, in particular in and around Flint and Detroit. Membership would continue to climb under its most famous leader, Walter Ruther, and it would eventually peak at around 1.5 million members during the 1970s. Today, the membership is hovering in the area of 400,000 active members, with 150,000 of them covered by a master agreement with the big three automakers, Ford, Chrysler, and Stellantis. And right now, today, in 2023, those members who find themselves working directly in the automotive industry are facing down those big three American automakers, again, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, and they look to be able, willing, and ready to strike when their contracts run out in September. This, if it happened, would be one of the biggest strikes ever to happen in this country and would grind a huge amount of companies directly in the auto industry to a halt. It would also affect companies all across the country who supply the big three and all of the ancillary companies that help them produce vehicles. The demands of these workers are many, but their battle cry is simple. Record profits, record contracts. The UAW demands include, but are not limited to, making temp workers permanent and limiting the further use of temp workers, more paid time off, PTO days, increase in pension payments for those already retired, the establishment of defined benefit pensions for all workers, getting the right to strike over plant closures, eliminating pay tiers, and this is one of the big ones here, seeking a double-digit raise for all workers, up to even 40%, COLA adjustments, cost-of-living adjustments, better health care for current employees as well as retirees, eight-hour days, and even a four-day work week. Some view this list, which isn't even a full accounting, by the way, as not just shooting for the moon, but shooting for another galaxy. Others think it does not go far enough. And I think that the argument from the UAW is that it's better to shoot for the next galaxy and land on Mars than it is to shoot for the moon and end up in the Pacific Ocean. But this difference in negotiation tactics and the difference in what would be acceptable in a new contract is exactly why Sean Fain was elected. It actually mirrors in many ways why Sean O'Brien was elected into the Teamsters leadership. Like O'Brien, Fain was elected on a platform of being more militant, being willing to strike, and for promising to fight tooth and nail for raises and increased benefit packages for both the rank and file and retirees. O'Brien was supported by the dissident, democracy-minded Teamsters United caucus, while Fane came out of the dissident UAW Members United faction, which won every single election that it ran a member in, by the way. Fane and the other Members United candidates ran on that platform of record profits, record contracts, and his campaign slogan was, 
quote, no corruption, no concessions, no tears, end quote. And he won. Post-election, he really established where he stood versus the old guard when he refused to participate in the then-orderly, respectable, and expected spectacle of walking into a boardroom and shaking hands with the executives from Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Stellantis being the former Chrysler Group, by the way, just in case I never mentioned that. Um, Before Fane, this was a standard practice to shake hands, glad hand around. It was a way for the conciliatory UAW leaders to show the politicians and the mega wealthy auto industry investors that they would not rock the boat and would accept a corporate-friendly deal and that the UAW would stab its own workers in their backs. Fain rejected this weak show of friendliness and, let's be honest, this mark of corruption, and instead he went to three production plants, one of each of the car makers, and he shook hands with the men and women on those shop floors. In doing this, he shunned the overly friendly, corporate-friendly, concessionary stance that his predecessors tended to take, and he signaled to his union brothers and sisters that business would not be done as usual and that the greedy corporate dorks were in for a fight. Fane's win was only possible because those same forces which propelled him to victory in 2023 had fought for democracy within the Union in 2021, and they had won that fight. It's wild that democracy had to be fought for so hard, but once won, the rank and file were able to cast aside the previous gatekeepers, the Administration Caucus, which had run the Union undemocratically for decades and had been corrupted and gone rotten, perpetuating an old boy network that was overly friendly to the Detroit suits and unresponsive to the rank and file. This victory opened the door for direct elections for the first time since the union's early years. The result was, of course, like I said a couple times now, Sean Fain's victory. But the victory it wasn't overwhelming. In fact, he won by an extremely narrow margin and in an election that had only an 18% turnout. That means he won by a relatively small handful of votes. This narrow win on such a small voter turnout could potentially be an issue if a strike happens and it lasts longer than expected. And the reason why I say that is because Fain isn't coming into this with an overwhelming mandate like what we saw with O'Brien and the Teamsters. Fane could very easily find himself on shaky footing if things turn sour with a long strike. This could be a lever which the carmakers lean on to get a return to negotiations if the rank and file begin to turn on their leadership. But that's all a little bit further down the road, I guess. It's just something that I've been thinking about. And by the way, even with the small turnout and the narrow win, the two shops I deal with which are UAW organized are, according to the people I've spoken to, very much on board with a strike. So it seems like perhaps even those who didn't vote are being convinced by Fane and the Members United faction. And hello there, everybody. As most of you probably know, this podcast takes a lot of time and effort to put together and, you know, to get out there for you good folks to listen to. And you, our listeners, can help us by liking and subscribing on YouTube. So please take a second to click those little buttons. It helps a ton. And if you are feeling just a little bit more generous 
and you enjoy what we do here at Tribunus Plebis Media, you can help us earn just a little bit of money for the large amount of labor that we put into this thing by signing up on our Buy Me A Coffee page, where you can make a one-time donation or sign up for a recurring monthly subscription. We do all of this for free, and we will never run ads in our works. But any contributions really do help keep the show going and improving. The page address is buymeacoffee.com slash tribunusplebis. And of course, all links will be in the show notes and descriptions wherever you are listening or watching. Thank you. And now, back to the episode. Now, other than refusing to shake hands and play patty cake with the corporate dorks in the boardroom, Fane has eschewed um, another time-honored tactic of the UAW. He has so far refused to decide which of the big three to actually strike, stirring a fear that he may do the previously unthinkable and strike against all three at once. For many years, the UAW, when they felt they needed to strike, it has chosen one target, and that target was usually the manufacturer, which was doing the best at the time. If Ford was in a boom period, the UAW would strike against Ford and allow GM and Chrysler, now Stellantis, to absorb that work which Ford lost. In times where maybe GM was riding high, they'd strike GM and let Ford and Chrysler free feed for a few weeks before ending the strike and so on. It's been a tried and true method. Um, cripple one of the big three car makers while allowing the other two to gorge. And if they do go that way again, it looks like Stellantis will probably be the target. They have been doing very well lately, especially with their Jeep imprint. But Fane and the UAW continue to insist that Stellantis isn't the target and that the big three are, sending waves of fear across the country. One seat-making company said that a strike against Stellantis would cost them $60 million over a couple of weeks, but a strike against all three would cost them north of $150 million. And that's just one company making car seats. There are hundreds, thousands even, of vendors all across the country making everything from thermal-formed plastic dashboards to stamped sheet metal body panels to hinges and wiring harnesses. All of these companies would be affected by a strike. Recently, Stellantis sent a contract proposal to UAW, which Fane called concessionary, and literally tossed into a trash can saying that that's where the contract belonged because it was, in fact, garbage. And so I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, when we get things like this from the company and they want to sit there and talk about they're not asking for concessions or looking for concessions, everything they're looking for in this document is about concessions. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do with, with their proposal. I'm going to file it in its proper place because that's where it belongs, the trash, because that's what it is. The contract included language to allow workers to be punished more easily and more harshly for calling out of work, cut health coverage, altered profit-sharing formulas against the workers' interests, and had cuts in 401k company contributions, all things which Fain rejected outright as non-starters. A lot of people view the union demands, raises, eight-hour days, better health care, and so on, as beyond the pale. But when a corporation says they want to have 12-hour days, cut health care, lower 401k contributions, and so on, they just say, yeah, of course, these guys are so smart. And this is a good litmus test on where people stand, a way to answer which side that they are on. 
The CEOs of the big three automakers saw their compensation rise by an average of 40% since the last contract and nobody batted an eye. It would take the average factory worker at you know one of these assembly plants almost 20 years to make what the GM CEO, Mary Barra, made in a single week. So why not a 40% raise for the workers as well? I mean, hell, if they don't get it, why not ask, right? Why not shoot for the next galaxy and take Neptune or Saturn or Mars? Why be happy with not reaching the moon and burning up on re-entry? The UAW has been in a spot of bargaining from a weak position over the last several contracts, all for various reasons, including the 2008 financial crisis. And they've taken hits and given concessions to the big three. Hell, two of those companies even required federal bailouts and the union granted concessions as well to save them and to save the jobs of those in those factories. And now that the companies are flush with cash, profits, and soon-to-be-coming electric vehicle subsidies from the feds, and more on battery factories in a moment, by the way, why shouldn't they ask for more? Why not demand it, and why won't these greedy companies agree to any of these terms? Like, you know, not even one of them. They are sure as hell glad to take money from the workers in downtimes, aren't they? But now they refuse to bargain in good faith when their purses are bursting at the seams. A 40% raise may seem wild, but the workers deserve it, not the CEOs. And just in case what I just said isn't clear, the workers are infinitely more deserving of a 40% raise than any dork-ass CEO ever will be. And that's not an exaggeration or a joke, it's just plain truth. Even demands as mild and ordinary as asking for a return to 8-hour workdays Seems like something out of a fever dream to many people. They can't possibly comprehend workers having the gall to want to put an end to working 12 hours a day and 7 days a week for months on end with no say in it. Here's something from a study which I used in an earlier episode of this podcast. Quote, Researchers from University College London compiled data on the relationship between working hours and heart attack risk in over 600,000 workers, as well as similar data on stroke risk in over 500,000 workers. They adjusted their data to compensate for individual workers' differences due to health behaviors such as smoking, alcohol consumption, and physical activity, and also adjusted for the presence of other cardiac risk factors such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol. They found that those who work more than 55 hours per week had a 13% greater risk of a heart attack and were 33% more likely to suffer a stroke compared to those who worked 35 to 40 hours per week, end quote. 13% more likely to have a heart attack, 33% more likely to suffer a stroke. Those numbers are horrific. And yet we call workers lazy who are begging to work just eight hours a day. We are in a current state where we celebrate absolute ghouls like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and Jeff Bezos and demonize workers for wanting to work 40 hours a week and to see their families. It's a weird-ass world right now. I'm not going to lie to you. And yeah, that was a little gratuitous shot at those loser billionaires, but I guess I felt like insulting them, and they deserve it. Now, when we see how strong of a reaction some people had to eight-hour workdays, And let's take a second here to think about how 
the American labor movement is once again in a tooth and nail fight for eight hour workdays. Hello, 1860. It is bad to see you again. Now imagine how these people are reacting to the very idea of a four-day work week. They are not dealing well with it. It seems bizarre to many. But those many, they haven't been working 12-hour days, seven days a week for months on end, like a lot of the factory workers have, producing cars for Detroit's uh, three big car companies, the ultra-profitable big three. This demand may also be an effort to create more jobs as well and to create more workers to organize, fulfilling two key points of the new leadership's mission, to create more good jobs and to build membership numbers. There is also another problem with the battery plants which uh, supply the car makers. Assembly workers in the auto factories will make twice as much as the ununionized battery plant workers, and Fane has made organizing those plants a key goal moving forward a move which these companies have so far successfully deflected. This is actually an incredibly important fight that the UAW and labor in general needs to get in and has to win. With the general trend towards hybrid, but especially towards full electric vehicles, there will be ever more demand for these batteries, and organizing these factories is absolutely needed and should be a fundamental point of focus for the UAW first, but really any other union as well. We need to fold those battery workers into these contracts. The move to electric will continue to be supercharged as well with the coming federal subsidies that are going to flow to these car makers in the near future. Another problem that needs to be addressed is the GM subsidiary of GM Subsystems. GM Subsystems controls some of the warehouses and supply chain employees at some GM plants, and it pays them much lower wages than the assembly line employees. This is creating the two-tier problem that we've seen so often in these past few years of strikes. The UAW has to be worried that GM will keep pushing more and more jobs to GM subsystems and the lower wages under the subsidiary, and that they will move them away from the higher paid areas. All tiered pay systems need to go, period. Not just in the auto industry or just for UAW workers. We've seen this fight, like I think I mentioned earlier, in various union fights over the past several years. They are put in there, these tier systems, to divide workers and keep them focused on each other rather than on the real enemy, the C-suite dorks who profit off of their labor. All tiers must be eradicated in every contract, in every industry, in every union. This shouldn't even be controversial. Unfortunately, it is. All of the UAW's demands are, sadly enough, controversial. This in spite of the basic self-love and recognition of our humanity, which drives them. Our current state in this country is a deference to corporate greed, a constant bending of the knee to corporate wants and needs, and a glorification of the literal sacrifice of the American working class to sate these needs. We work longer, we work harder, we earn less, and we can never retire. We get less time with our friends, family, and even with ourselves. We are constantly assaulted with inflation, yes, but mostly just corporate price gouging in pursuit of maximal profits while our wages remain stagnant at best. But mostly, we just fall behind versus the greedflation of the COVID era. We work more hours, take second jobs, degrade our health, both physical and mental, and we degrade ourselves emotionally and mentally as well. 
just to tread water and maintain some semblance of the standard of living that we had just a few years ago. The UAW is in for a fight, and they are on the righteous side of this battle. They are fighting for wages, health care, and retirement, yes, of course, but they're also fighting for recognition and dignity. We here at Tribunus Plebis Media, of course, stand with the UAW workers and all workers always in solidarity. We hope that these brave workers get everything that they want in their upcoming contract, strike or no strike. Solidarity now, solidarity forever. And that, my friends, is the end of the episode. I hope you liked it. Uh, please, you know, like, subscribe, comment wherever you are. Follow us wherever you are. They're, all the links are below in the description, no matter where you're listening to this. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for always listening. And I love you all. <laughs>